Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello, everyone. How are you? And you are tuned in to the Jewel Network, hosted by Blog Talk Radio. And I am your host because you're listening to my show, the Dr. Jewel Show. And we are just excited to be here this evening. And for those of you who are celebrating the holiday, happy holiday. I don't know if you are cooking out or you went to the beaches or whatever, but, you know, take the time to smell the roses and enjoy it's a fabulous evening where we are here in the southern, eastern portion of the United States. And with me today, of course, this is our a campaign for hosting stars. And the star that we have today is Mr. Eugene Cook, who is a fabulous agriculturalist. And he's going to talk to us today about harvest time and being prepared to plant for the fall and for the winter. So hi, Eugene. How are you? I'm blessed. Thank you so much, Dr. Jewell, for having me back, and it's a joy to be here with you and your listeners once again. Well, thank you so much. You know, since we talked here, because you got it started here with our summer gardens and things, I learned a lot from my summer garden, and I tell you, all I can say now is, Soil, 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 because you must prepare the earth. And what I thought about after seeing what happened with my garden and everything, I was like, okay, we cannot get around having a fabulous, strong foundation in whatever we're going to do. This is very, very important. We have to have a fabulous foundation. So whether it's planting your garden, whether it's, you know, deciding you're going to be a fabulous orator or deciding that you are going to uh, be a musician or whatever, you cannot get around the fact that it is really important to have that foundation. And that's what I thought about with my garden. I did not prepare my soil as thoroughly as I could, and I saw the results, Eugene. So tell us about that and what we need to do to pep up what we're going to do for the fall and the winter garden. Oh, great. Well, that's everything you're saying is exactly right. The the, the planet Earth is well-equipped to grow food on its own and has been doing that for years. The reason why we have to prepare our soils so much is because of the work that we've done against that natural system. So most of us living here in urban areas, these urban areas have had the layers of topsoil stripped to put in housing tracks, they've had layers of topsoil paved over, they've had, we've had layers of topsoil removed through erosion once trees have been uprooted. So these soils that take hundreds and thousands of years to build up inches and feet of good, rich topsoil, that's a long process. So when we decide that we want to, as human beings, have gardens in these urban settings where we have stripped everything away, then we are basically trying to create soil in a very accelerated manner because to create the topsoil takes years of leaf drop. It takes years of um, wood being decomposed by insects and microorganisms. So when we start to try to accelerate this process, 
what you experience, Dr. Jewell, in your garden is actually par for the course when we have, um, when we're beginning the garden for the first time. Even if we load oh, really? it with a lot of, yes, because when, even if we load it with lots of um, organic matter and uh, m- uh, organic fertilizers and manures and whatnot, it's a vir- it's in virgin area, and what that does is it calls all of the life forms back to that area, and they come hungry, and they come and they start to devour anything that we plant until there is some equilibrium striked, and that balance happens by continuing to be diligent and planting every season. Oh, and well, then the that, cultivation of the soil is important. Okay, well, that's very important to know because uh, I'm sure that there's never been a garden in my little garden where, that I grew. And, you know, it was a great success, but I recognized that just from once my seeds actually germinated and began to grow, I didn't get the really dark green foliage that, you know, I'm used to seeing there was still this, you know, discoloration and some of the leaves and that kind of thing, even though they continue to grow. But when I thought about the immunity of my plants, that's when I saw the difference. I was able to get some crop, you know, as my onions grew, but they were teeny. I did get lots of peppers. I got lots of cucumbers. My eggplant got very tall. I think it got a little spindly because I planted a west garden. And can you imagine, mm. <laughs> I was, that son and I, we were working it out. So I had to keep my garden a lot under uh, the shade and an umbrella, so my garden had a beach umbrella. <laughs> it was a special mm. garden that had a beach umbrella. So I, you know, had to really work with the sun and making sure that it got, obviously, sun exposure. But between the hours of 2 and 6, oh, no, I had to really uh, beach umbrella my garden because at the mm. end of the day it would just be frazzled and I was like okay we got to keep it saturated with water and I tell you those huge big green caterpillars with the spiked tail and the dots down mm. the back they were big as my middle finger just eating my leaves away and that was the weakness that I saw because I know for a fact that when a plant is really strong like you've instructed us that these insects, when they bite into them, they're like, whatever the chemistry is, they're like, oh, no, we can't handle you. And they will not attack a healthy, healthy plant. Is that correct? That is correct. And to, so that is, leads us back to your point about building the soil. The soil is basically the immune system for these plants. And if we cultivate a healthy immune system, it's just like here we are as human beings moving around and suddenly they say it's flu season, everybody get your flu shot. But as you know, being a, a medical doctor, you know that all of these different viruses and pathogens and, and, and irritants are always floating around in our atmosphere. It is our the depletion or the depression of our immune system that makes us susceptible to these things or a strong immune system that makes us able to ward them off. So, yes, we cultivate the soil and we make sure that it's aerated. We also want to go back to what you were saying about where we plant. Here in the northern hemisphere on the planet, we want to plant our gardens on where? On the south side if we can, right? Because that we're planting on the west, we're going to get a very extreme afternoon heat and they can very easily scorch the plants or just make it very hard for them to retain any of their moisture. And the soil dries out, and then just like a dehydrated person, 
the immune system is immediately compromised. Headaches come on and all kinds of other problems that are really just a factor of dehydration now become an issue in that person's life. Well, see, so when I, we know, cultivate I live in a, soil, hmm, well, I'm sorry. I just wanted to just, well, no problem. I just wanted to interject that because I lived in a townhouse complex that I have people on the north and south of me, okay? Mm. I only had that east and the west exposure, and, you know, the west is in the back of the townhouse, obviously, which would give space for a garden and more privacy, et cetera. And so, you know, I had that experience because that west mm -hmm. is tough. You know what I mean? And so, therefore, um, you know, my plants on the front, I have flowers on the front in the east, you know, they did quite well, okay? But I tell you, that West was, you know, if my plants hadn't had a beach umbrella, we wouldn't even have gotten the amount of uh, harvest that we did acquire. So I just thought that was very interesting, uh, just looking at that whole uh, situation. And if I can just take it to this level, comparing that to us, Okay, we laugh and we talk about the ghetto and, you know, we talk about the suburbs and, you know, we talk about the inner city and we talk about the downtown area and the metroplex. People have to become aware of the fact that what they're describing is an environment. They're describing a circumstance that contains particular type energies that have what kind of effect on our bodies what kind of effect on our minds because that's literally what I was making the analogy to when I looked at the fact of what I was going to have to do to be able to have even a West Garden because otherwise within a week the garden would have been destroyed by the extreme exposure to the intense sunlight, as you said. So I had to bring things into that environment to support it and to buffer it, conscientious watering at night, proper shade, during the intense hours with the beach umbrella to be able to get the amount of uh, success that I had. So we don't even study our environments to actually say, okay, well, the inner city environment, is it really ideal? Okay, the suburbs or the farm areas or, you know, the quote, the ghetto, uh, the downtown commercial areas. What has to happen in those environments that need to either be buffered or that need to be added in some way or something removed to ensure that we are the best that we can be at all times, just like I had to discover about my garden. So I think mm -hmm. it's very powerful to make these kind of analogies as we work with the plants because the same laws apply. So, you know, what's analogous to having a west exposure on the garden? What's analogous to having a... Uh, downtown environment on the human, okay? This, what has to be brought in or what has to be uh, ensured that's there so that the human being in that environment doesn't get overexposed, doesn't get dehydrated, doesn't have their immune system compromised. Nobody's really talking about and making sure that these support systems are in place based on the variability of the environments and what they do to influence us. Do you understand? Absolutely. And that's why, like many of the listeners on the first show were calling from living in apartment complexes or living in urban areas, uh, right. downtown areas. And the important factor there is that 
when we have these conversations, what we have to understand is when we look around those areas, there are oftentimes, especially at this point uh, in the economy, there are vacant lots or there are many homes that have been foreclosed and there's nothing going on with that property. And the, the most valuable unused farmland in the United States is the American front yard and backyard. So we can use these spaces and then ensure that the people do get what they need because an urban garden for a person like yourself who may only have the option to grow on the west side of their house and they figure, okay, I've tried this, it's a little bit too much, um, it's, it's just too overbearing for me to deal with this, then we look in our environment and we find out that maybe down the street or in the area of our job there's a vacant lot or there's homes that have been foreclosed on, and we can start to be creative as a group of people, a group of citizens, and say, look, we're going to come in and we're going to maintain this yard as a food production space. We're going to maintain this vacant lot as a food production space. And now we have, we're adding everything to the environment. We're adding oxygen to the environment. We're adding beauty to the environment. We're adding, of course, nutrition to the environment. And we are creating a community effort, and that community effort adds safety and security to the environment. Because now people are in these spaces and they're they're looking at these spaces as a pl- as a source of life energy, as opposed to a sort of source of fear or danger vibration. And that is a fabulous idea. That's a fabulous idea because again, you know what I'm going to do starting next spring. You know I've made plans for myself that I probably won't be in that same space. But I will leave as a suggestion for anybody those plants that can take, you know, high intense sunlight is what they should put on the west side there and uh, the the, uh, plants that could probably handle it. Otherwise, it's really true. They should look to the uh, east or to the south, as you say, southeast to be able to put their gardens and identify that space. So, and and that's a communal area. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or we can also use spaces like that for fruit trees as opposed to a garden, right? So if we have a west area that has extreme sunlight and all this kind of issue, then we say, okay, we won't plant a garden here. What we'll do is we'll plant a tree here. And this tree, of course, is going to be there longer. It's going to continue to produce its own shade, and it's going to take a little bit of care in the beginning, extra watering, but a lot of that can happen during this season, the fall and the winter, and you establish the trees at this season, plant the fruit trees now, water them in good. Come spring, they sprout out and they start to create their own, and they love, they can, a lot of them can really eat up all of that light and intensity, and they don't, they're not going to be squelched by it because their roots are deeper than vegetables that are seasonal and are only in the ground for a short amount of time. So the urban agriculture vision is to see not that I, in my own small space, have to grow everything that I need. No, we're in urban areas, and we share transportation. We share, we all eat in these diners or in these restaurants together. We're already sharing so much. We go to gyms and work out on the same equipment. We're already sharing so much. So we have to take that same mentality and say, okay, look, you can grow some fruit trees. I have enough space to grow some herbs for some tea and for for seasoning food, maybe you grow the vegetables or we find a common plot that's between our, that's in our, a lot of these uh, subdivisions have a common plot in their area, even apartment complexes, what they call projects in Los Angeles where we started out. A lot of these projects had a common courtyard that wasn't being used for anything. 
And all you had to do was start digging it up and get two or three interested tenants, a lot of times the elderly tenants or the older tenants that know about this, and get them involved and they'll bring their grandchildren in and suddenly an unused courtyard in the middle of the ghetto or the projects is producing food. Well, I think those that's are the a great ideas idea. Right. Well, you know what I saw while you were speaking? I said, okay, what I think would be great is, for example, if you are in a development, as they call it now, okay, and you just don't have access to the South or Southwest, that, again, bringing forth that relationship that everybody can say three families, four families, okay, since we have this kind of light, then we're going to grow only this on our side. Thing. And so, therefore, other people on the other side, it's okay, you grow this on your side, we'll grow this on our side, and therefore, everybody can have the variety, but we'll only specialize with those kind of plants that this environment is ideal for. You understand Absolutely. what I'm saying? And Absolutely. I said, you know, I said, now that's a great idea. So, if you live in a high rise and everybody, you know, you got five families facing the east, and on the other side, mm-hmm. the east, they're on the southwest. It's like, okay, well, you pick three things that you're going to grow on your terrace. We'll pick three things that are going to grow on our terrace. And between five families on each side, we'll have enough of all of this all summer. And so it would make Absolutely. it simpler because, therefore, you only have to focus on these three things. You become the master of that. You know that, you know, you're having more variety, but you don't have to worry about it because somebody else has the ideal conditions. But when the harvest time comes, everybody has, this whole plethora of five, six, seven different eight vegetables that they've been able to grow, but they didn't have to have full responsibility because their environment dictated what was ideal for Mm. where they lived, but yet and still they could have the whole cornucopia because everybody cooperated with doing what their environment said was ideal in that space. Now, that's, a, that's a, another different program. Isn't that nice? And everybody's working together. And that's what, and now we have a safer community right there because exactly. we're interacting, we're exchanging, we're having to talk and communicate, and food right. is doing what it always is doing, bringing people together. Bring people together, right. Now, one more thing before you go into the harvest here. Oh, my goodness, we've just been talking. If you are just tuning in to my show, you've been tuned into the Dr. Jewel Show. I'm your host, Dr. Jewel, and with me today I have our wonderful guest, Eugene Cook from Geospace. Geo Gepsite. Yes. Gepsite. I don't know why I want to turn that into Geo, but, you know, <laughs> you can tell us the story again because I know about the guy, Jeff, okay, and, uh, you know, he's the uh, – awareness of the earth because we know that in Egypt all of the so-called gods as they've been mislabeled to be even though they were gods per se was just a facet of our own brain and our own capability of being masters of the universe. Is that correct? Do you understand that? So everybody has clearly stated how to develop the Geb in them or the Isis in them or the Osiris in them or the Kronos in them or the Hapi in them. These were attributes and aspects of the brain. And that is so important that we have to understand that when we went into these areas of specific study, which in the ancient times were called what? Temple, okay? When we came out of the other side, we were the masters of that because we had cultivated this area of the brain 
totally grew all those neurons, integrated it with all other areas of the brain, and we could move on to the next site. Therefore, having full mastery of that particular quality of energy, we actually became the living manifestation of those highest concepts, which is what Godship is about, the highest manifestation mm. of the highest principles of the cosmos. That's what Godship is about. So, therefore, yes, Deb site, Mr. Eugene Cook, Master Agriculturalist, is here with us. And I just want to share with you one more thing before you move forward into telling us about the um, fall, our fall and our winter gardens, how to prepare my worms. I learned a lot about worms, okay, from my little compost that I kept. And, you know, I found it so rewarding not to take my uh, fresh vegetable waste and put it down the garbage disposal, but to actually be able to know that I was recycling it and taking it to a living organism that would appreciate it and actually then be able to be used to re-fertilize the soil, re-aerate it and everything. And I tell you, in my composter, because I did not use the standardized composter. I just, you know, got a, a, a box and put my dirt in it, et cetera, and put my food on top. And the worms go to the bottom, and then they crawl up, and they eat the food on the top, and their uh, castings, their worm poop is so high in all these nutrients, and that's what you put on the soil. And so, you know, I just had to be honest, you know, I, I had to learn, so I was paying attention. And it got to the point where it was like all worm castings with worms. And I was like, oh, that couldn't be really healthy. I was like, is it like what, you know, is it like if your toilet is spilling over, you know, and you're sitting there with all your waste and that's the same thing? We don't want that to happen. And I was like, oh, my God, i got to give them a better home. So I was like, okay, what can I do? And I was like, okay, you've got to continuously put – I learned this. you got to continuously put soil. You just can't keep putting the food, but they live in the soil. The soil is their house. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And they so, are earthworms. Yeah. Exactly. So I was like, you got to put more soil in here. So it's like you got all these worms, and it's like, do they fall out of the sky? I've never saw worms so little. I mean, they're like well, little teeny worms the size of the head of a pen. Sounds like, well, do they come out of an egg or, you know, do they have their babies lie? I mean, I've never seen so many worms. And I was like, okay, let me just keep layering earth on here. So I had to put more earth and then I put the food on top. And I was like, wow, I could put my spade in there and lift up the earth. Because it's hard to tell worm catching from actual high-quality earth. You know, it's so black and everything. There would be so many worms in there, Eugene. And I was like, wow. So I was just taking, you know, put the whole thing on top of my garden, you know, around the base of the roots of the plant. And, you know, you could stand there, and once the worms got used to the environment that they were in the air and they were in, you know, light, they would immediately want to go into the earth. And it was amazing how they would disappear right into the earth. And I was like, wow, like that's really something that they, you know, once they recuperate from the transformation here of a new environment, they go right into the earth. And it's like, they're so smart. You know what I mean? They're so smart. Absolutely. I, I have long stuff to the zoo. I have so many worms. And they, some of them got really big, Eugene. They were like five inches long. And they were at least almost a fourth of an inch wide. Healthy. 
healthy. And the small ones that you talked about are the ones that are actually most active. They're the ones that do the most active reproducing because they're young and they're full of all that life force energy. Many times as growers, we come across uh, different people who have different techniques and technologies, and a grower that I met um, talked to me about a particular um, formula that he made to keep the worms or to stimulate worm activity and to stimulate worm reproduction, where he would take a five-gallon bucket of water, and then he would set it outside. He'd put a couple tablespoons of blackstrap molasses in that bucket. He'd take a few bananas and break them up into chunks and stuff them into a lady's pantyhose and tie a knot in it and just soak those bananas in that bucket of water with blackstrap molasses. And he'd leave that outside for about a day or two and just spin it and stir it up every so often. So now what we have in there is we have potassium, we have calcium, we have iron. All of this is being soaked into that water among all the different trace elements that are in there and then sugar content. So then we would take a handful of earthworms from an earthworm bin like yours and place them in strategic spots in a large garden in the evening time when it's cool and let the earthworms begin to do what you saw where they just start to dig into the ground. And we take that water and spray the earth where they are with that water. And that water becomes such a stimulant for their activity. And since earthworms um, are not male or female, they are both, they don't have to choose their mates. They also don't have eyes, so they're not being as selective as, as we are. And as long as they have the nutrition and the stimulants, they begin to mate and reproduce rapidly. And they aerate the soil, and they do all the work while we're asleep. Yeah, and they're great indicators of healthy soil. Yeah, well, they they were amazing. I just said, boy, look, we got trillions of worms in here. You know, I was giving some worms to the lady up the, up to the yard and everything. I got tons of worms. So I said, now, you know, uh, if I had a real composter, oh, my goodness, I probably would have just trillions of worms. You know, I saw this a picture of a man who raises earthworms, and he put himself in a uh, wheelbarrow and had, just worms put all over him. And he <laughs> made, I don't know how many millions of dollars selling these different varieties of worms. So mm. he was just giving an example of how this was his moneymaker, you know, and it was kind of strange to see a head in a mountain of worms, okay, because that's mm. the, the picture emulated. But his thing is that, you know, I love these worms, and this is how I got paid. So I just mm. thought it was just really uh, incredible to do the research and recognize how important earthworms are and, you know, just how they are able to reproduce, how they are, what I call them, androgynous. You know, they're interesting creatures, you know, very interesting. Yeah, so they're a very important part of the garden, and I really begin to appreciate that. And you want to tell us about the last thing that ate up my leaves, those little, little amazing huge caterpillars with the spike on the tail that are green and all the little teeny legs. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. That's, they uh, are the that's the eaters. <laughs> they will eat and eat and eat, and they're the ones that everyone sees. And one of the easiest ways to deal with them is just to get up early in the morning and pick them off because that's when they're going to be out. They're not going to be out in the heat of the day. So we get up in early in the morning and pick them off. And they can be, they can go right back into the cycle of life and you place them in an area where 
a bird will get them or, or they'll just integrate themselves back into a different environment um, and then continue to cultivate the soil because they are indicators of some sort of deficiency and they come to take care of it and balance. They're just doing what they do. All of these in insect infestations are indicators. There's a great um, doctor of ethnobotanist by the name of Dr. Kwaku Ando. And he wrote a book called Biblical Mana, and he's also here in the south. He was here in the southeast for a while, and when we met, he he was showing me. We were looking at um, a larger farm that we were working on, and he said, "If you, we were, one of my my business partner was very distressed by some of the infestation that was happening, and he kept pointing to that um, small infestation, and he said, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what's going on here.' And Dr. Ando just said, "Hey." Expect to lose 10%. As long as you're not losing any more than 10% of your garden, it's okay. Because that 10% is basically like our tithing to the planet. We are also here not only to feed ourselves, but to feed all of these other organisms. And if we have a row of cabbage in a farm or a mini farm, and two or three cabbages are being attacked, if we take those out, then the infestation is just going to move to two more. Whereas if we leave them in, the infestation will stay there on those two, and the rest of the cabbage will be fine. So we now, have to expect to lose no more than 10%. If we start to lose more than 10%, we might have a problem. Now, let me say this. I thought this was interesting because as I was in my garden just clearing out the remainder of the dying plants and stuff because they had, you know, come through their full cycle, I was like, okay, you little worms, whatever you are, caterpillars, I said, you know, you really ate up my leaves and you did some little damage. My little garden was only three feet by six feet, you know. And I was like, okay. And I saw this picture where if I would plant a small acreage only for the insects oh. and actually tell the insects, now this is for you, so I'm going to water it, take care of it, et cetera, just like I would the other areas. But if I put that there for them, that they basically would literally have peace with that and would have minimal interest or need to actually be involved with the rest of the garden. Now, that's what actually was shown to me because, you know, my work, I'm a real big advocate of the fact that, you know, once I really activate my avian brain, once I really activate my insectoid brain, that I can communicate with any of these organisms, and they will understand. I used to do that whenever I had a party for the flies and, you know, the fruit flies. It's like, okay, I'd make a plate for them. I'd put that at the end, way end of the terrace or the party area. I'd say, okay, this is where you all can eat. I'd make it, like, really juicy and whatever else, et cetera. And they would all get it. And they would all go down there and eat and whatever else. And my guests and myself, we were not plagued with them flying around our heads and on our table. And growers have been doing that for centuries. So it shows, again, the attunement of being of awakening yourself. When we awaken ourselves, we get past time and space. So the, the wisdom that came to you is present wisdom and timeless wisdom at the same time because that's exactly what, Natural growers, organic growers, indigenous growers have been doing for eons. Okay. Is growing well, I, for the animals, growing for the insects. Absolutely. Right. Well, I find that yeah, because that's what intuitively I was shown to do next time is that you need to plant a little plant pot for them, no problem, and then they will not, you know, 
be so busy on the stuff that you're going to use for you. And same, and I learned something else, Eugene, uh, and then I want you to start talking about the fall here, about the mosquitoes. I started talking to the mother mosquito. There is a mother mosquito. She is a big thing. And when you are able to recognize her and tell her, okay, I'm out here, I'm, you know, going to discharge, um, you know, my energy, my disharmonious energies to the earth, you know, I'm breathing with Mother Earth to recharge myself, to harmonize myself, would you please tell your children not to light on me? I do not want to kill any of your children. You know, I don't want to snap at them, slap them, or anything like that. So if you just let them know I'm just here to align myself, et cetera, no problem, then, you know, we're both fine. And it just seems like every time I would acknowledge her and ask her to please, you know, that the, her children know that I'm just here to, you know, recharge and whatever else, et cetera, I would never have any problems being bit, et cetera. Everybody else would be like, wow, these mosquitoes are really getting me, and, you know, they're popping themselves and whatever else, et cetera. Before I would go into any areas that I knew were highly, as they would say, infected with mosquitoes, I would always communicate with the mother mosquito, the mother consciousness of all mosquitoes, and acknowledge them and let them know that I was moving into their environment. The reason why I was going into their environment, I then would never have any problems. It was like, okay... They recognize us. They're not intruding. Everybody pays attention. I've never had any problems. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's something else that we need to understand, that, you know, if we can acknowledge the consciousness of these things, okay, just because they seem smaller or their bodies look different than ours, they're intelligent and they have consciousness. And when we recognize that, et cetera, they basically will respond. It's amazing. Yes, we can communicate and should communicate with our entire environment. And we spoke on that on the first talk where we spoke about how to establish the relationship with the seeds. All of these are absolutely conscious entities, and they will work with us as long as we are humble enough to acknowledge them. You're right. Okay. Well, you've got a lot of questions here. People want you to comment on stuff. But before you start commenting on these things, uh, they got some interesting things they want you to talk about. Uh, wow, interesting. Give us the teachings on what we need to do now for the fall, what plants we have available to us that will, if we're going to go ahead and get prepared for the winter or winter crops. Give us the lowdown. And, oh, my goodness, before you start, I just want to let you know we have the master gardener here, Mr. Eugene Cook from Geo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Geo. I don't know why. You know, that B turns into an O. What is that? Okay. So it's Gebsite, not Geo, okay? Gebsite, www.gebsite.com, Master Agriculturist, who's going to tell us how we can get ready in our urban environment for our fall garden as well as our winter garden. And then all of you have questions, and all of you in the chat room have comments, et cetera. We'll deal with that on the last half hour of the show. So with not further ado, you're listening to the Jewel Network. I'm Dr. Jewel, and with us we have Master Agriculturist Eugene Cook of Campsite, and he's going to tell us how we can get ready for crop crops. So give us the teachings, please. 
One of the main things that we can do just to be very practical is to look up a planting zone chart. Because we're talking to worldwide listeners here, and I don't want to make too many generalities, but the first thing is to look up a planting zone and a climate zone to know exactly where you are. Once we look up those climate zones here in southeastern United States, we are in either zones 9, 8, and it starts to get the numbers are smaller as we start to move north. So in these particular climate zones, there's going to be a particular family of plants that can be planted at a particular season. So we're moving into what we call the coal crops, C-O-L-E, coal crops. And the coal crops are anything in the brassica families like your broccolis, cabbages, collard greens. Of course, we can also plant kales and spinach, root vegetables like carrots, turnips, radishes, beets. All of those things are we're moving into their season. So the first thing for us to do after we locate what our planting zone is, is to figure out by making contact maybe with our county extension agent, with they'll start to show us a planting chart. And on that planting chart, it will have very simple dates and brackets of what we can plant. Again, here in the United States, southeastern United States, between here we are in the beginning of September to maybe October 1st, we can do a lot of these root crops. We can do we can plant in a lot of the green leafy vegetables. And that's because we're moving into a cool season, so we no longer need to eat fruits that are juicy and high in water content like tomatoes, cucumbers, okras, beans. All of those are fruits, and, of course, they come ripe in the hottest time of the year when the body needs to be hydrated. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. So we're moving into the time period where we're really looking to absorb light. And when we want to absorb light, eating green, dark green leafy vegetables, getting high doses of chlorophyll in the body, as you've talked about on many of your shows, helps us to get light into the body when the days are becoming shorter and the sunlight is at a different frequency based on where the earth is and how it's tilting in relationship to the sun. So green leafy vegetables are planted so that during the wintertime when we are cool and the bodies are cool and we're able to keep that water, now what we need is increased light energy and we eat the leaves of plants that have been standing out and absorbing all of that sunlight because these plants are growing at a time when the leaves are falling off the trees. So they're absorbing a different frequency, a different color of light vibration. That's what we're moving into. Okay. Well, you know, that's it. Now I put it out there. And, Eugene, I'm going to hold you to this, is that you're going to be our, you know, master director to help us be able to wean ourselves off eating so much and wean ourselves on being able to utilize more sunlight. Because, you know, what, what I've really come to discover is, you know, botany and agriculture and horticulture, et cetera, were sciences for observation just to really understand how life and light move through these life forms on the planet. But we literally were not here to devour them, okay? This is very important to understand. 
and we do have the capacity in that we are light ourselves to use light directly. So if we are able to extract light directly from a pure light source, the sun, uh, the air, etc., then we don't actually then have to consume indirect light by having to actually eat other life, light forms to extract their energy quotients to sustain our body. And we are now moving in energy fields, the Van Allen belt, et cetera, where we will now have access to enough light directly where we no longer have to basically use indirect sources for our sustenance. So I want people to begin to understand that it's very, very important to recognize that as we're becoming green with our fuel sources, okay, that now we're moving from having to go deep into the earth and use coal tar or deep into the earth to use uh, natural gas, et cetera, that we're using ambient pure energies, the air itself, you know, wind turbine, directly the sun on little uh, sheets of melanin, okay, literally, which is, you know, what the uh, solar uh, arrays are, okay. They're really synthetic melanins that are able to captivate the direct sunlight, et cetera, and then uh, transform that into electrical energy to be held in a grid and stored in a battery, et cetera. We have these same structures built into our tissues. So, therefore, as we become green with the earth, we have to become green with ourselves. And so that means that we're now going to become less reliant on the earth for nourishment and more reliant on the direct energy field. And you have to understand now there's a movement, whether we can recognize it or not, that is going to allow us to also be able to do that. None of us should ever have to be held bay by corporations who think that we're going to become enslaved to them by their misuse and manipulation of the food chain. So we have corporations that have impregnated many plants, and, you know, the plant world is very upset about this and have crossbred them with animal genes and a lot of other things that they know they would have never, ever had experiences with. So, therefore, are you just supposed to eat genetically engineered food and, you know, mutate to be able to accommodate that? Well, that is a choice if you would like. You don't have to do that, however. You can then recognize that as we are using less toxic, manipulated fuel sources, we can also become more efficient in our breathing. We can also become more efficient in our capacity to directly interact with light, which now brings us into the science of melanin and melanology so that we can begin to have a direct communication with our lungs as we learn how to directly extract prana from the air. We can now have a direct communication with our melanocytes. Everybody has them, whether you're white as a sheep or whether you're navy blue black. We all have melanocytes, and it's your degree of awareness of them and your capacity to communicate with them that will determine how inactive or active they will become. 
They are modulated by your state of consciousness, and people don't even recognize it. So, therefore, we have the opportunity now to decrease our predation index. So that's what I call it, Eugene, our predation index, okay? Mm-hmm. And we can be much kinder to the plants, recognizing that we're friends, we're now going to be eating less of you. We have the master pigment known as melanin. The chlorophyll is a less evolved form of melanin, and so therefore, just like the chloroplast in the plants, we have the melanosomes in humans that will allow us to directly interact with light. So that is why the urban garden now is actually a step away from this very gross, complex agriculture, agribusiness, okay, that has been part of the problem that has caused such an imbalance amongst the plant world on planet Earth. There was never, ever to be hundreds of thousands of acres of just one plant, and you know that. And so we created a lot of imbalance in the soil. We, you know, created a lot of mutations in the insects. We have destroyed some of the insects, for example, our bees and things like that, because of this pure crop, one crop, massive crop agriculture. So now since we know that we can mutate to attain more light directly ourselves, so don't ever think that, you know, moving into wind turbine science, moving into solar uh, grid science is not also a reflection of what we're supposed to do with our own bodies. I have to bring that to your attention, everyone. You are supposed to also grow in being able to be more effective in using your own bodies. You can extract the life force out of the air by proper breathing now. You can actually now utilize sunlight directly. More cosmic rays you can process, more x-rays, more gamma rays, more UV light, because by activating the electrical grid of the body that you've already been hardwired for, you can do these things. So with Eugene telling us how we can use less space to have a higher yield of plants and to rely on our local produce automatically is going to downsize the amount of food that we're going to consume that has the potency to be able to sustain our bodies without having to support this mass agriculture that has really now been rebuked by planet Earth. Dr. Jewel, you hit on a lot of points there, and they're valuable points. And so what we see is how growing where you are becomes the first step in that transition, right? Exactly. As we start to transition, now getting absorbing light becomes a natural byproduct of spending time in the garden. Because for some people, your listeners are, of course, a special group of people. But for some people, the idea of me being able to live off of light that I'm absorbing through the sun is a far concept that they may never even think about actively trying to put and integrate into their life. But when we say, hey, maybe you want to start a garden in your at your home, and they start to spend more time outside, and they feel that energy. They're less tired. 
They start to sleep less hours. They start to become more flexible because of the work that they're doing. Their digestion and their bowel movements start to work better because they're squatting and lifting and bending and moving. And everything starts to harmonize because, as you say, they're now taking full, deep breaths. They're now absorbing that natural prana. They're absorbing the sunlight. And then when they start to hear that kind of information coming from a Dr. Jewel Pukram, they say, oh, I've experienced that. I know what that feels like, and I didn't know what that was. Oh, that's the model, the microcosm and the macrocosm. Yes, a wind turbine, uh, a field of wind turbines is absolutely being modeled after our ability to breathe deeply with the diaphragm and draw that energy in. Absolutely. And the solar panels and the leaves on the plants, for that matter, are definitely being modeled after the microcosm that's happening within our body. And when we start to grow food for ourselves because of the high mineral content, we will start to eat less because the gluttony that has been created from industrial agriculture, as you were talking about, the gluttony is because they started pushing all these devitalized grains on us, mainly eating grains. And these grains were pushing us into a space of always not having a balanced meal, so we were always feeling hungry, so now we have the obesity epidemic, and all of this chronic overeating. So we're trying to bring people back. I'm sorry. (laughs) No problem. But, you know, I think it's very important to recognize that, you know, the grain is the fruit of the grasses. So that also is a fruit, okay? Absolutely. And normally if it had been allowed to stay in its unadulterated form, it would also not have been a problem. But now and it's not taking, even so much of a problem now. It's just the uh, the imbalance. It's just the imbalance of the the sad. The standard American diet is just not balanced. No, not at all. Well. And mm-hmm. when it was stable, when it was created, based on the fact that everything was then robbed of its harmony. I mean, every. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure most mm-hmm. of us have grown up on white bread. There's no such thing. Mm-hmm naturally Mm -hmm. as white bread. There's no such thing naturally as white sugar. There's no such thing naturally as white pasta. There's no such thing naturally as white rice. There's no such thing naturally as white flour. None of that is natural. And you have to understand that most of us, we were never exposed to these basic subsidies in our diet in their natural form. And that's incredible. Mm -hmm. Okay, do you understand? So, therefore, the body many, many centuries ago began to mutate to an abnormal circumstance where minerals and vitamins had been removed. Now, I'm still not even conscientious, and I've done a lot of research and I still uh, and traveled to try to figure out and go to the source, what was the mindset? What was going on in the minds of anybody that would want to thrash rice to remove all of the B vitamins as well as the fiber. Why would they want to basically do that to wheat? Why would they want to do that to any grain? What was going on in the mind that they would do anything like that and remove the vitamins to get something that literally was colorless? I think that, you know, and I've done some research trying to figure out what was the rationale for such an act. It took far more energy to produce these products than to leave them in their natural state. It's like taking cocaine and making crack. 
and mm-hmm. then selling mm-hmm. the crack at a much lower price. Why would you want to basically sell me white rice at a lower price than rice in its natural state with all of its B vitamins? I mean, you know, was somebody really aware that if we take all of these B vitamins and the minerals off of these food sources, that it would lead to, make, lead to a foundation of addiction? Well, so there we go. Because, so now, I mean, yeah, we're, we, veered, we veered off the topic, but now you're getting into the answer there, of course, right? So we also looked at what, when did that development happen along with other developments in our society, such as, you know, these health healthcare systems and these hospitals and all of these things, these things were all, they all kind of were a symbiotic type of development. And here amazing. we go. Amazing. Right. I mean, amazing. Mm. You're going to charge me five to ten times more for a bag of brown rice than white rice, but to produce white rice requires far more energy input. Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't make sense. I mean, white bread to make white flour, all of this energy to make this, the same with brown sugar. I mean, it's naturally brown, cane sugar, all of it. And you're going to basically take all the minerals and vitamins, all the zinc, et cetera, off of it and sell it to me at a cheaper price. What are you doing? Why would this be the case? There's something that is really out of balance here. So you have to begin to understand that there have been actions that have gone on before our birth that have now led us full cycle to having not only look at the fact that agribusiness has never worked in our best interest, as long as we're going to command, you're going to take and take all the minerals and vitamins or something and then tell me, oh, it's okay, I'll fortify it for you. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. Or that I'm going to fortify it, I'm going to put some, you know, other stuff on there, and it's fine. I'm like, I cannot believe this. See, this is what I'm saying, you know, that, you know, you've got to balance your brain so that you can really see what's happening. So now here we are at this crucial point in our metamorphosis and evolution with these debilitated bodies because of this readiness of having consumed this kind of food, and we are going to have to be able to do what? Make a quantum leap in ensuring that we are not going to fall between the cracks. Why? Because we're going to basically limit the amount that we're going to start eating, we're going to grow most of what we eat, and we're going to start start accepting the fact that all we've been looking for in all of this eating has been what? The light. And then mm-hmm. all I have to do is just stand in it, look at it, and yes, I can absorb it. And we know proof of that. There's no such thing as, uh, you know, seasonal affective disorder if you weren't already absorbing light without having to eat. So if not being in light can affect me in such a way where I'm depressed that I basically can't focus, that my immune system is down, then I was already photosynthesizing. Was I not? Yes, I was. Well, there you go. That's right. This concept of photosynthesis in human beings has been proven to us. But, again, it's just like finally recognizing that our cells are immortal, that we're finally backing into understanding the greatness that we have. So, you know, what Eugene is offering and how to be able to farm in these very small spaces so that what you eat, you know that you've got heirloom seeds, that they're not adulterated, 
that you grew them, took care of them yourself, your own fertilizer from your own little worms and the whole bit, et cetera, and then being green and making sure that you are breathing, making sure that you are getting adequate sunlight, watch and see the incredible things that are going to happen to you. It's going to be incredible, I'm telling you. So, you know, give us the ends on, you know, how we can begin to break away from the uh, scorn of what agribusiness has put before us as food when it was never that. It was literally an abuse and a misuse of the human body to create these chronic long-term chemical imbalances that have what led to this huge epidemic of what? Addiction. And that's the most beautiful that's the most beautiful part about it is just coming into that clarity as you said we back, we're backing into it because the more we are trying to investigate the problem we we point directly at the solution what you said about seasonal affective disorder is perfect if if we're affected by lack of sunlight obviously sunlight has a prominent role in our health and using the techniques of growing local give us that opportunity. So what we want to do at this time period as we start to move into the fall is we want to gather up, like you were saying about your, your vegetable scraps, instead of grinding them up and throwing them into the, into the down the sink and all of that kind of thing, we start to gather up all the leaves that are falling, continue to gather up our vegetable scraps, and allow them to decompose by inoculating them with soil that's already fertile and healthy with worms and microorganisms from the garden that you had going during the spring and the summer. So we gather up that and we open up the soil gently. I don't advocate tilling and turning over the soil on a regular basis, but opening it up so that it can be aerated so that the water can flow into it. And then cover up, take all the dead plant matter from spring and summer, the large squash leaves, the vines, all of that, and let chop that up. Just chop it up with some with some lopper tools or even run a lawnmower over it and make a big pile and run a lawnmower over it and shred it up real good. Layer that on top of that bed. And then begin to come in with compost, with uh, vegetarian animal manures or mushroom compost. There's a lot of different things that we can start to layer on that bed. Keep it moist for about a week or so and allow that activity that microorganism activity, the earthworm activity, to begin its process. And then we put the seeds out. And when we put the seeds out, we want to be mindful. New moon and the full moon are the time when these large celestial bodies, the earth, the moon, and the sun, are in a direct line. During the new moon and the full moon, they are in direct line, and the energy is very, very strong. And that energy is helpful when it comes to keeping that soil moist. It's highest in moisture during the full moon, but during the new moon, it's also very elevated, just the energy, the interaction that's happening between these celestial bodies. And these are the things we want to think about as we move into the fall and into our planting season. Okay. Well, I think that is fabulous here. You know, while you were speaking, I was thinking about, okay, it's time for me to put my garden to bed and, you know, all these things that I can basically do to do that. Now, you didn't say anything about pine needles, 
which are the leaves from pine trees. What do you think about that as far as using that to layer over where my garden was? Does it change the chemistry of the soil way too much? Or what do you yes, think? it will. It will. It's uh, you know they're acid forming, and of course we can you can do things to counter that. But the best thing is just to avoid them in general. Um, and we can use things like newspaper. Take newspaper, shred it up, wet it down, and add it. We can use any of these organic um, matter that is not going to form acid. Pine needles are acid forming, and they can definitely throw the pH of the soil off. And so then as we, when we know what we're going to plant, we want to give ourselves like a little planting chart and think about the things that we like, of course, and then think about companion plants that help. So when we're planting green leafy vegetables, some of the herbs that are protectors and that are stimulators for those, there's an herb called borage. And borage is, a, is an herb, a beautiful flowering herb that attracts pollinators or insects, but it also has a companion, a symbiotic relationship with a lot of the brassica family. So it will keep the health because of what it pulls in through its system and implants through its roots into the soil. So we plant these different herbs around, strategically planted around our other vegetables that we're growing. Garlic mm -hmm. is always a good protector. Onions are good protectors. Those are the things that we want to plant around the garden so that our plants stay protected. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah, it's interesting. I was listening to how our uh, environment really affects us because you were saying borage, and I was like, oh, he means barrage. Okay, <laughs> so I pronounce it barrage, you pronounce it borage. Okay, okay, okay. Isn't it amazing? Mm -hmm. See, this is what we have yes. to understand, how environment really influences us, even though we're all the same. We make ourselves uniquely different because of how we have come to adapt to our environment. And that's what we've got to basically begin to understand, is that, you know, we're not unrelated at all. Okay, we are from the same parents on the same planet, but the environment that we've inhabited has basically caused our genes to turn on, certain ones to turn off. It has caused our brain to process information in a particularly unique way so that we have these uniquely interesting different appearances and different ways that we may speak or walk, but it's only just because of external influences demonstrated through a huge capability of potential. And that's that's amazing. So, you know, I'm thinking of the plants again and my garden. I mean, it's just really so wonderful how we're just really all uh, here responding to how we think and how the environment uh, has affected us based on how we think. So tell me more about what we can do. So as we move into the change of seasons, the change of seasons are a crucial time period because as many of us start to see that we're having different kind of allergic reactions or we're having um, different sleep patterns because it's a time when a lot is happening. There's a lot of decomposing happening, and there's also the shift in the climate itself. 
the shift in the climate itself allows us to become more disciplined because as things change, we start to alter when we, when we wake up and when we sleep. And the gardening is one of the best forms of disciplining us. As you notice with your garden, it takes a certain amount of time and attention. And when it comes into the cool season, that shifts because things are moving slower and they are developing slower, and they also require different stimulants. For example, collard greens can grow during this fall, and then they actually get tender when we get that freeze because the freeze freezes the cellular structure in it, and when it thaws out, then it becomes very tender. So we start to look at different elements that are working around us, and we say, okay, if in fact these things are growing slower, then this gives me time to start to plan out what's going to happen in spring. If there's another area where we're planning on expanding the garden for the spring and the summer, this is the time period where, again, we start to gather in all the material that we need. We're going to start to see limbs falling off trees. We're going to start to see um, different patches of sunlight and space in the yard in a different way and things where we know we can clear the space and clean the space and begin to build an area for the spring garden. And we want to gather all the resources now. As our fall garden is growing slowly, it's going to need, the main thing that it's going to need is to be fed and to be kept warm. And we keep it warm by increasing the nitrogen content around the plants, like you were doing with the worm castings around the roots, and that keeps the soil warm. We want to, we can dress the soil with, um, with straw or hay, and that will also keep the soil warm if we happen to be in a freeze area. And this is, again, the time when it's it's getting to be more suitable to start to plant fruit trees that are going to blossom out the next year. So we start to plan our situation and say, I'm going, I'm really taking control of this food growing, and it includes herbs, trees, fruiting shrubs, and the vegetables. It becomes a complete system, and that will call back everything into the urban environment that we need from beneficial insects and birds. Oh, okay. Okay, great. Okay, well, Eugene, there's been so much activity and so many questions going on in the chat room, so I want to get to those before uh, we move on. This has been such a short interview, even though we've been talking for almost an hour and 15 minutes. Amazing, amazing. So I just want to let everyone know, if you just tuned in, you have just come into the downside of a fabulous, fabulous show. This is the Dr. Jewel Show. I'm your host, Dr. Jewel. You are listening to The Jewel Network, justifiably enchanted with enlightened living, hosted by Blog Talk Radio. And today we have had with us from Geb Sites, Master Gardener and Agriculturalist, Eugene Cook, who has been sharing with us lots of things. But most of all, how to be able to put our garden space to bed or and to prepare it for our winter gardens, our collard greens, etc. We've talked about moving from eating agribusiness food to eating our own foods grown in our own urban gardens and our own apartments, et cetera, taking care of the land, fertilizing it with compost to the extent of recognizing that 
being able to just spend time with the plants also enhances our capacity to directly photosynthesize and extract light directly from its natural sources, the sun, the stars, directly through our own melanin. So these are the opportunities that are available to us now. Yes, you did hear me correctly. We as humans have a capacity to photosynthesize just like the plants directly. And proof of that is seasonal affective disorder when you don't get enough sunlight. So what are you doing then? If I'm outside and if I don't get enough light, then why am I having any symptoms from it if I'm not directly photosynthesizing? And you are. Just nobody told you that you have the ultimate pigment to photosynthesize with, far greater than chlorophyll, and it's known as melanin. So, you know, Eugene, I guess everybody says, you know, Tosh Dr. Jewel, she's always going to bring that melanin business into everything. And the key is, yes, I am, because it is the key to us being able to be the great beings that we are and to actually be able to directly interact with all suns and all stars of which we are. Okay, everybody forgets, what is the sun made out of? Nitrogen primarily. What is the atmosphere made out of? Nitrogen primarily. What is the earth element that's so important in the soil? Nitrogen. The proteins Mm -hmm. that are necessary, they don't work without nitrogen. Nitrogen is the foundation for all stars. So if you are so dependent on nitrogen, how could you be anything else other than what you are, a star yourself? So these are finally the realities, what I call, quote, the pieces of Osiris that are now being reassembled and put together so that we can ascend and finally become the living divine consciousness, the godlet that we were created to be. And it's wonderful. And our little plants now are letting us know we've been helping you all this time. You've been eating us up, et cetera. Thank you for now getting up off of us, <laughs> you know, selecting us, the ones that you really need, et cetera, because now moving into the Van Allen belt with all this energy, X-ray, UV light, cosmic rays, et cetera, we've got to be able to wing it on our own. The plants have supported us. The earth has supported us. Now we can wing it on our own by recognizing that all these things we've been consuming to get energy indirectly, we can also do it for ourselves. And Eugene is giving us the master tips on how to go from depending 100% on plant life to putting ourselves in a position and giving back to that world that we are empowering ourselves. Now, see, I had to just throw that in there again. This is so wonderful. So, Eugene, are you ready for any questions here? Oh, absolutely. I just hope that I'm, I'm equipped to handle them or I can direct people in the right place so, where they can get the proper answer. Well, you know, you're a, a living divine being, and you have been endowed with this fabulous information about the harmony of things. I doubt very seriously that there's any questions that you and you as who you really are, a manifestation of divine awareness, could not answer. So with that acknowledgement, dear engineer, do you have anybody with their hands raised before I go to 
the statements and the questions in the chat room. Actually, it would be a great idea to go ahead and start with the chat. Everybody seems to be very excited in there. Okay, okay. Well, as I said, I'm sure I uh, put some stars on their mind. <laughs> no pun intended. Okie dokie. So now we're going to go retrograde again. Interesting, same thing with our development. Someone wants to ask, if you can talk about complementary crops, so you talked about, okay, when you plant a plant and you then plant it with its complements, you have a greater balance, et cetera, and stability. So can you give us some winter crops based on the crop schedule or the crop calendar and what the complementary crops would be just for this individual? Yes. Uh, what we want to always do is, is make sure that we have the flowers, edible flowers in the garden. So in the cooler time, we can always plant pansies. We can even plant some nasturtiums that will last. Um, some of them will last through the very cool climates. Then we talked about borage or borage. We can keep in the garden the different herbs that are cold tolerant, like lavender, um, herbs like rosemary. These, things, these herbs will stay and they'll continue to grow through the cold season. They may slow down a bit, but they'll, also, they'll stay there. Sage, depending on how cold the climate gets, is also very beneficial in the garden. The crops that, uh, like onion and garlic, they're, it depends on where we are, but when we're going to put them in. But they are in the garden as protectors, and at certain times we plant them for harvest. And in certain seasons, we, the cooler seasons, we can mainly plant them as protectors in the garden. So the thing that we're looking for when we talk about companions, if I can go back a minute, is to realize that everything in nature has a sense of discretion and discernment. The, different in, the difference in plant life is that as humans, when we come into an environment and we come into contact with somebody who we don't necessarily harmonize with, we have the ability to get up from that chair and walk away. The plants don't do that. So what they do is try to give out all these different signals about what's happening in the rhizosphere, the rhizosphere being the area just below the surface of the soil where the roots are oftentimes competing with each other or, best-case scenario with a companion plant, they're giving off beneficial um, gases or nutrients because they're drawing something different in from particular set of cosmic elements, be it a star system or um, or just the way they're absorbing light and it's coming through their own system, they're giving something different into the soil from nitrogen to any of the 52 other um, elements, or not elements, but um, I'm looking for a particular word, <laughs> nutrients for the soil, uh, minerals for the soil. So, when we do the companions, we're tr what we're doing is helping the plants because they're going to give us signals, but by the time they give us a signal that they're planted next to something that they don't like, then we, the plant is already very weak. So there's, you can look online and look up companion planting charts depending on what you're going to be planting in your area. Or remember that what we want to do is plant a diversity of herbs in the garden because the herbs are really the ones that are giving, they work the same way they do in homeopathy. A small amount of herbs in the garden stimulate a great amount of natural 
healing energy in the soil itself. It just works as a stimulant. Okay. Well, you know, thank you, Eugene. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Jewel Network, hosted by Blog Talk Radio. This is the Dr. Jewel Show. Hi, I'm your hostess, and we're on the last quarter of the uh, show. It's been a fabulous show, and I just have a few more questions that I want uh, Eugene to answer, but I have one statement based on what you said, Eugene, that I just have to comment on. First of all, uh, as soon as I finish, I definitely want you to tell us about your book here, okay, mm-hmm. that you have coming out, your e-book, what's in it, et cetera, but it's very important to uh, know this, and I have always stood the grounds on these things, and I've been very... Uh, I've had to really make peace with the fact that there are very few people who would uh, stand and align themselves with really being a protector of sorts in the human realm for planet Earth, i.e., so many foods being imported to different regions of the Earth have really caused havoc and chaos in the uh, rhizosphere, as you've talked about. And most of these individuals have not been willing to recognize that the electromagnetic field is different in the south than in the north. We know for a fact that when you go to the sub- south pole, when you flush the toilet, the water swirls counterclockwise. When you're in the north pole, it swirls clockwise because of these electromagnetic fields and the grids. The same thing is happening in the earth so that we know that we can eat foods and we can transplant plants, we can move them on the same latitude lines on the energetic grid of this planet, but not on the longitude lines. And we've had so many people tell us, oh, you know, you know, I've got this plant from the south, whether it's in, you know, uh, the... Um, Central America or South America for somebody to be using in Alaska? I don't think so, okay? No. The people in Alaska, you want to use Iceland plants, you know, uh, the North Pole plants. Now you're actually working around the same latitude, longitude, and you're in alignment with the rhinosphere, the activity that's going on under the earth with the plants, and very few individuals have honored that. So, like, if you really like the foods and everything that are really being grown in the tropics and the south of you, then that perhaps is a place that you want to spend time allowing yourself to eat that food because the body is a barometer. It naturally can align itself with a radius of 300 miles. It can tell you what's happening in a 300-mile radius at any particular time when you understand the communication that you have with your body. But now when you're giving it information that through the food is 1,000 miles away from you, Mm -hmm. 5,000 miles away from you, what does that have to do with the adaptation and the need that the body has to be precise relative to the space and time that it presently is occupied? None. So I noticed so many people whose diet was tropical. We have people coming from all these different places, and they import all this food, comes 5,000 miles away, and they're awkward. They have accidents. They basically can't seem to get to the gist of things. They're not able to focus. Well, how can you when you're constantly giving 
your body, this massive, incredible barometer, information about environment your body isn't even in. Mm-hmm. And how do you think that this food is even capable of giving you even the maximum amount of information? You're eating bananas here that have come plantains that are coming 2,000 miles away from you. They have to pick them hard as a rock. All the enzymes, everything, are immature. What does that mean? Because the information in them has not actually been able to come into full fruition because the tissues are not able to absorb and hold it because the tissues are still in its developmental stage. So, therefore, you transport this, you're trying to eat it, and what can it give you but a lot of incomplete information energetically? And, you know, I have so few individuals who want to basically comment on this, and I'm glad that you brought that up about the uh, rhizosphere because most people want to get into that because agribusiness is a big business, and they see themselves, first of all, with their um, uh, financial resource uh, disconnected. And that's not the situation at all, that it's right here for you, but you then have to put some interest in the moment and in the present and understand what is it here that can take care of this condition. Our Mother Earth would never, ever say that, you know, for you to get a healing, you've got to be able to get some plants or some elixirs that are 5,000 miles away. That is an insult to Mother Earth. Like she can she can take care of every animal in the moment. She can take care of every in, insect, every tree, but all of a sudden for you, you got to hope that somebody uh, – is going to bring you your remedy, and they're 5,000 miles away. What an insult. And that is very disrespectful to the intelligence of who you are and the intelligence of this planet. But we have fallen for this over and over and over again, and I say that those individuals who are genuine scientists and who really say that they respect the forces of energy that are responsible for this huge ball of light and life called planet Earth, are being very hypocritical and heretic in offering people resolutions to imbalances that are not local in origin. And local is 300 miles or less. Mm. So, therefore, Oh, yeah, because you, you, I mean, just think about it. You know, you're the master of the rhizosphere and what's going on with the plants. So you're talking about the fact that, you know, if my complement is, you know, planted near me, et cetera, what that does energetically, can you imagine bringing a whole foreigner here and slapping mm-hmm. it down? <laughs> They're like at war. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we never, ever respected that because, again, we are still dealing with life and all of its various forms that it can manifest in. So that's why, you know, we've been promoting here at the Jewel Network the secret life of plants, Eugene, so that people can understand that they have feelings, that they literally are conscious and aware of you, that they are conscious and aware of other plants, and we need to basically stop going around acting like Nothing has consciousness and intelligence except for us. Mm. So this is very, very important to understand. When my plants brush up against me, you know, they give me information. I can look at them and they'll be like, uh, you know, we've been asking you for water for two days. When are you going to water? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I know you did. You know, let me get over here. I mean, they tell me this. And it's like, you know, uh, 
we're not liking the light over here. What are you going to do for us? Okay. I'm like, you're too funny. You're getting smart. I said, thank you. You know, <laughs> talk to my class because they really have their personalities. And so when you see that sacred life of plants and you see how they've been able to identify this, that they have their little personalities, they are funny, humorous, et cetera, they're living entities, we've got to basically put ourselves in our proper place and respect and revere them. And they love us. And they recognize when you're getting ready to eat them, they know, oh, my goodness, I've been so chosen, et cetera. You know, they have the choice. They could smack you upside the head. Can you see a cabbage like, I don't think so today, <laughs> and get you upside the head, you know. So do not think that they do not have intelligence. And with that said, Eugene, before it's time to go, oh, my goodness, tell us about your resources and the books and the information you have available for us via gift site. What do you have for us? Well, what we have, we put together uh, basically on, on your urging and your request because it was such a smart idea that we organized something that the people can uh, pick up real quick. So if we go to gebsite.com, right on the home page there, you'll see a uh, book that is called Grow Where You Are. And it has basically um, been put together by myself and a business partner, Andrea Miller. It's called a Primer, and it's basically giving an overview of a a slightly broader philosophy of urban gardening. Some of the things that we've talked about here on the Dual Network, ideas that may be a bit more refreshing, and um, it's not a how-to garden book. It's a very small, downloadable ebook that can is inexpensive, eight ninety nine, and you get the information in there that lets you know about the importance of seeing the entire system as living, not just the square in your front or backyard, but the sky above it, the earth below it, and you right in the center. You right in the center providing the intention and the attention and connecting in the relationship part. So these are what we're offering, and we're going to be developing it further with more in-depth volumes about specific situations, whether we're trying to do community garden work or whether we're trying to do garden work that is strictly for observation and, and dealing with our spiritual practice like you were talking about. A lot of this work originally was done by people on a spiritual quest, and they were doing it to observe in close relationship these different plants and different beings and how they interact. So we'll broaden that out. But for now, we have the Grow Where You Are, an introduction to growing food, where you are, and sharing it with those you love, covering a broad spectrum of concepts that link us in the growing process, not just the consumption process, as you talked about. I love it. That is just so wonderful, and I just want to thank you for hearing me, because I know you have all this fabulous knowledge. We want everyone to have access to it worldwide, even though you're local here in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, world, you know, we're talking to, you know, almost 60 countries now, Eugene. They can mm. now basically have access to this. And so I'm just so excited about that. And, you know, we're seriously looking at, in a very short period of time, bumping up what we have available in Spanish and also in French. So wow. I'm just really excited here. It's time for us to uh, embrace what we really love, our life embrace what has sustained us to learn all about ourselves. This is our classroom, Mother Earth, 
and we definitely want to give homage to her. This is the alumni that you want to give back to everybody. So whether that's being able to take care of your worms or to, you know, plant your flowers or to plant your food, you know, to just take your shoes off and stand on her and breathe into her and let her basically breathe into you under the moon, under the sun. These are the things that she really loves and appreciates about each and every one of us. So, Eugene, we have just two more minutes, and um, I want you to just, you know, take us out on a very powerful note uh, of any high, fabulous thought that you may have that you want to impart with us before we move further. Everybody, please go to www.gebsite.com. And check out his book, please. And, you know, everybody's here saying, Eugene, come back. We hope you will. I'm looking at all this in the in the uh, chat room, et cetera. And, you know, we're booking it out. Yes, we are. Laughing out loud, LOL. <laughs> so, Eugene, <laughs> tell us the last bit of light that you want to leave with us on our melanocytes, on our pineal gland, and have us inhale it on the nitrogen in the air. It's very important that we realize that at any season we can grow and we can grow exactly where we are. And knowing that the truth is that oftentimes when it starts to get cool, we slow down and we give up on these sacred practices and sacred principles when, in fact, it's time to get more energized, to spend more time outside with our feet on the ground and our hands in the earth communing with the entire living system. And I'm grateful to be here. Thank you so much. Oh, you're wonderful. Thank you so much now. So check out www.gebsite.com. Don't forget now, straight from the chats are coming up. Visit our e-store and see what's available. And listen to me from Melanology on Wednesday. And, oh, please, it's about time with our cosmic hand. Tomorrow at 5. So check it out. you got to be able to tell the cycle. Bye-bye. We'll go to the report for a little bit, okay? Just a little bit. We got to get some gas or we're going to be pushing the car. All right, come on down. Zola, pause that tablet.
Let's go. We are. You gonna close your door? You gonna get your other shoe? On the app bed. Yeah. I'm leaving.